I'm Michelle Harvin, and welcome to Business 2020, Foresight Through Hindsight, a podcast of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program. In this podcast series, we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades. From the WTO protests to 9-11, from Enron to Occupy Wall Street, these events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. When we look back at turning points in American history, few stand out in scale like the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. It was a day of horror that changed our geopolitics and our sense of selves. And as we'll hear in this episode, it also changed the U.S. economy, shaping everything from government policy to how businesses operate. And when we look back on how the U.S. economy has changed since 2001, we can see another date that year, which would have lasting consequences. That is December 11, 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, taking place three months after 9-11. At the time, China's WTO admission registered less as an era-defining geopolitical event and more as good news for the business pages. But looking back from 2019, we can see China's accession to the WTO has left a complex legacy for business and society. Looking at the economic consequences of September 11th and December 11th, we can see how together they changed the world and upended assumptions about politics and economics. And to fully understand that change, we need to start by looking at the world as it would have appeared at the close of business on September 10th, 2001. You're looking at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. How low will stocks go with troubling economic news, anemic growth, and rising unemployment? All eyes are on Wall Street today, Monday, September the 10th, 2001. It's a red-hot battle about keeping the country out of recession. The economy was very quickly kind of going into recession. This is Linda Bilmez, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's senior lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And as a consequence, President Bush had cut taxes, radically cut taxes in the summer of 2001. And so in September 2001, everybody was kind of looking at this fragile economy and, and waiting to see whether the economy was going to recover. One of those people was Jim Barkley, who was working as a trader just a few hundred feet from the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. On the morning of September 11th, Jim was on the phone with a global partner and transferring options back and forth. I was looking out over the water facing north and, you know, just conversing. And we were talking about the markets overnight and talking about the book. And as the gentleman started to say, OK, we're going to transfer it back to you, started to experience a shadow that came over the window. And then all of a sudden large explosion happened right in front of me because we had these large picture windows the windows started to buckle in front of us. Jim rushed out of the building and down the streets of Lower Manhattan. And at that time, I started noticing a bunch of people starting to gather by the marina there. And we were looking up and we were seeing the trade centers and there was smoke coming out of one of the buildings. Still, no one really knew what was going on. There were, you know, all these rumors on the ground back and forth about something exploding on the top of the trade centers or a small plane hitting it. And then there was, it looked like debris or something coming off of the, of the trade center. So I decided to start walking north of the trade centers. 
And there's a very famous picture that you see when you had the second plane come in and it exploded from the other side. At that point, I was underneath that when that happened. Still without a clear understanding of exactly what was happening, Jim and the thousands of people in Lower Manhattan only understood that they needed to head north, away from the attacks. I was walking along the highway there and um, just with tons of other people, like everybody just in shock. And we started hearing all these rumors about a mall being attacked, Pentagon being attacked. And at that time, we, we didn't know whether a mall meant a shopping mall or what it meant originally. And none of the phones were working, right? So we couldn't call our families. There was this weird bond amongst the people that were walking because everyone was like in a little bit of a stupor. Um, and they, you know, people were looking out for each other. I remember, you know, people consoling each other. It was nighttime before he found a ride home to Westchester. It was one of the quickest rides I ever got home because there was no one on the street. And walked into my house literally as the president was addressing the nation. So that was the day. Jim went back to work that week, but nothing felt right. I think some of the most experiential things for me was that 48 hours later, we were trying to figure out positions. And I remember speaking to my wife saying, I can't believe we're trying to reconcile our profit and loss statements and our positions when this just happened, when all these people died. And, you know, it started to just sink in the impact of this and how many lives have been destroyed and how this is going to, you know, change the world. On October 7th, 2001, United States forces entered Afghanistan. America strikes back. Afghanistan is pounded with bombs and missiles from the air and sea. We are supported by the collective will of the world. There is thunderous explosions and the rattle of anti-aircraft fire uh, that's been heard throughout the Afghan capital. War isn't just a physical cataclysm. It's also an economic one. And the United States was already in a recession. Here's Linda Bilmez. The funding for the post 9-11 U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was done through emergency supplemental appropriations, which were immediately kind of pushed through the Congress. We then had the U.S. invasion of Iraq, followed by the second round of Bush tax cuts. So by summer of 2003, two years after the 9-11 attacks, we were now had a situation where revenues had fallen precipitously after the two rounds of tax cuts and the significant increase in spending from the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But let's step back to the economic shock of September 11th, 2001 itself. To some, it represented a rejection, a horrific one of the optimistic view that globalization and economic development would make us all richer and in time, more democratic. Financial flows across borders were now seen with new scrutiny. So one of the things that banks, and, and to this day, it's um, a very strong focus of the banking industry, is to monitor payments, any terrorist financing payments, or be part of collaborating and working with the government on these type of investigations and things of that nature. And it's taken very, very seriously by banks and, 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 and by um, governments and others with regard to it. Businesses were forced to adopt new practices to contend with the hazards of an interconnected world. Still, even if globalization would never seem as innocent as it did before September 11th, all optimism was not lost. 
In fact, on December 11, 2001, China joined the WTO. And for some, that represented the culmination of that pre-9-11 optimism. I think hopes were extremely high in 2001. That's Regina Abrami, the director of the Lauder Institute at the Wharton School of Business. I think at that point, from both the U.S. side and the China side, there was a notion or an idea and a hope that markets were some kind of panacea for development. And add to that, I think for the United States, there was a notion that if you engage China, you would change China. If most Americans still felt optimistic about this next chapter of globalization, that's because only a minority felt any negative effects at first, specifically those in organized labor. Here's Regina Abrami again. Displacement was happening with a weakening of U.S. unions, and that weakening of U.S. unions was happening really in the, in the run-up to China's accession to the WTO. U.S. unions were saying if China is, a, is made a full permanent member of the WTO, any leverage that U.S. labor has is going to be dramatically weakened, and it was. China's workforce was several times the size of the entire U.S. population and a fraction of the cost in wages. What global business might see as a boon to the bottom line, U.S. labor saw as a deep threat to what little leverage it had left. Still, while China's entry to the WTO might have impacted a small portion of U.S. labor at first, its impact would soon spread far further. China's WTO membership began to have global economic impacts, many of them intertwined with the impacts of 9-11. With war in Iraq and growing energy demand from China, oil skyrocketed in cost. Here's Linda Bilmez. Between 2003 and three years later, oil prices rose from $25 a barrel. They were about $23 uh, at the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq to about $140 a barrel. And this had a significant impact on many industries that are oil-reliant. This was a serious drag on business. And partly in response to that, we had a very loose monetary policy that was designed to try and stimulate the economy. And all those things together contributed to the housing bubble. Analyses like Bilmez suggest that 2001 launched an era of what might be thought of as wishful economics. Increasingly, the future was counted on to cover today's bills. Budget deficits went up and monetary policy got loose. The real estate bubble disguised a drop in wealth for a lot of ordinary Americans and hit a lot of other problems, such as micro-level displacement of workers, as well as limiting of certain industries. That's Regina Abrami again. And I'm taking you here through a time period that's running probably from 2001 up until about 2010, right, where you're seeing this, this, this increasing marriage between the two economies. You're seeing more and more U.S. production moving offshore into China. By 2008, when the bubble had turned into a crash and financial crisis, reality had come due. The U.S. was deep in debt and going deeper, and short-term interest rates went to zero. Meanwhile, millions of American jobs had been lost, and China's economic boom became impossible to ignore you start to see a different kind of shift happen, right? Which is China now is itself going out into the world. In the wake of the financial crisis, many Chinese firms uh, played an important role in infusing capital into some firms in the United States that were hard hit. 
And you saw firms such as Wanxiang, which is U.S. headquartered in Chicago, buying up a lot of the sort of smaller machine tool companies out in Detroit and in Connecticut. In the years after 2008, the United States kept up its reliance on budget deficits. Its economy and China's economy grew more interdependent. But China's wealth didn't lead to political liberalization. And many American businesses became resentful of China's influence, as did millions of displaced American workers. This helped lead to yet another geopolitical earthquake. We have a $500 billion deficit. We're like the piggy bank that's being robbed. I am with you. I will fight for you. And I will win for you. The rise of nationalism had complex causes. But many could be traced back to the rebellion against the policy arrangements made in 2001, just after the 9-11 attacks and the accession of China to the WTO three months later on December 11th. That's when the United States entered into immense military and economic commitments that continue to this day. Inflation expectations remain below target. President Trump has confirmed the U.S. will maintain a presence in Afghanistan, even if an agreement is reached with the Taliban to end its 18-year war. It's very unlikely that China is going to budge through pressure alone. So looking back at those crucial turning points of 9-11 and China's accession to the WTO, what can business people learn today? At the simplest level, says Jim Barkley, 9-11 taught every business to have an emergency plan in place. At the corporate level, there were some very, I'll call it practical things that that changed uh, dramatically. Prior to those events, I I don't think, you know, corporations or firms really took the business continuity planning seriously. Um, It was always a a thing that they did, but 9-11 made it real. No one ever thought a building was going to go down. And on a personal level, 9-11 taught Jim that executives should make sure they're doing something that feels meaningful, something that will give them strength in hard times. Jim says the surprise of 9-11 wound up pushing him into a new career. And today, he is the group head of non-financial risk at Credit Suisse. I had an opportunity to go in and actually work in a place, in an industry, where we're trying to do right by clients every day. It's actually very refreshing, right? Because when we come in, you know, we're a line of defense where we're trying to do the right thing and make sure things are suitable and appropriate for clients. Linda Bilmes says 2001 kicked off our long-running reliance on deficit spending and low interest rates, which will carry a high cost in the years ahead. Virtually everybody is paying lower taxes than we were paying before 9-11. The National debt has increased from $6 trillion at the time um, of, of the 9-11 attacks to $22 trillion, which was hit just yesterday. All of this has been made possible by the fact that interest rates have been extraordinarily low, particularly since 2008. And because everything has been swept under the carpet, paid for off budget and paid for with debt, we haven't come to grips with the long-term costs. Linda's point about off-budget costs to some suggest a major lesson for business, one also underscored by China's admission to the WTO. Huge change isn't always obvious change. The day China joined the WTO seemed to change little about how we lived and worked, but in 2019, it poses profound questions for our future. It's not just the trade war 
or even U.S. policymakers' concern that Chinese technology from 5G to TikTok may create security risks for American consumers and businesses. When both Chinese basketball fans and reportedly government officials called for the firing of a Houston Rockets general manager for a tweet supportive of Hong Kong protesters, the broader American public took note. Some Americans wonder if interdependence will challenge U.S. values such as free speech. Where American businesses once assumed markets would change China, they now wonder if it is China that will change them. How can businesses prepare for a future that unfolds against their predictions? Regina Abrami says they need to train future leaders very differently. Here she is with the final word. The world does not move in linear ways and that it goes forwards and backwards and upwards and down. And you need to train people to be ready for that world. And that means training them for a world that is not certain. We're having an appreciation for context matters. I teach a course called Fault Lines in the Global System, and that course is really geared to generate some aha moments for the students that I'm hoping get them to understand that if they just think that mastering frameworks is going to help them master a career or life or business, they're mistaken. And I want them to see sort of some of the surprises. And that's the thought we'll leave you with today. So if you haven't already, please leave a review for Business 2020 on iTunes and subscribe to receive new episodes as they go live each Tuesday. You won't want to miss our next episode, which looks at the intersection of the big picture and individual action during a very different event. You know, I was a professor of innovation for 20 years. If we put our minds to this, we can solve it. Renewables are already cheaper than fossil fuels. We can transition our economy and create millions of jobs as we do it and make the air much cleaner. Business 2020 is hosted and produced by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann, with input from Miguel Pedro, Felicia Davis, and the Business and Society team. Recorded by Ben Eiler and edited by Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Linda Bilmez, Jim Barkley, and Regina Abrami. Archival audio clips you heard at the start of the episode were from NBC News on September 10th and from an ABC News special from September 10th, 2001. Other archival audio clips you heard were from NBC and CNN from October 7th, 2001, the Associated Press from May 2nd, 2016, and from Cleveland.com on July 21st, 2016, Sound also came from Bloomberg Markets from October 15, 2019, and from Sky News Australia on August 29, 2019, and Fox Business News on October 24, 2019. You can find detailed information on the music and sound credits through the site page for this episode on the BSP website. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.